moments that rock our world. And to help us successfully navigate those moments, please help me welcome to the studio my friend, Lee Atherton. We are hitting it fast this morning because white water moments happen and they don't happen with notice. We don't get any warning sometimes. So coming into the studio right now is my friend Lee. And as soon as the tech wizard gives her permission, she'll be right here. Here we go. Poof, magic. And there you are. It's magic. <laughs> it's Good morning. Magic. Good morning, Lee. Thank you so much for being willing and making the time to come on the show. This is just awesome. I am so excited. So am I. Thank you both for putting this together and supporting those out there who need it, right, in, in this wonderful way. Well, we are out to inspire the world. And while we are focused on helping people thrive in uncertain times, we also recognize that uncertainty can include loss. And it often does. And so navigating loss is your specialty, not mine. <laughs> and that's why I was so excited that you could come on the show. So let's talk about it. Yeah. What got you into, you know, give us the world according to Lee. Take us on this journey yeah. with you. The world according to Lee. Who knew that this is where I'd end up? Uh, I had a colleague who was a hospice chaplain. She kept telling me I should do that, that I'd be good. And I, no, uh, she went on an extended vacation and begged me to cover for that. And as they say, the rest is history. It is amazing, absolutely amazing how profound it is to be with people as they journey through the end of life, but then to be with their loved ones as they navigate grief. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Uh, so we have two kinds of grief that we're going to be talking about today. One is the one that you would have if someone in your family was in hospice. Mm -hmm. And we're going to call that, for lack of a better term, predictable. Yes. You know it's coming. And you know it's not only coming, because let's face it, we all know that everyone around us, including us, is going to die at some right. point. But what we don't know is when. People in hospice have a pretty good clue when. You know, sometime within the next X number of months, it's mm -hmm. you know, really pretty simple to figure out. Right. So that's predictable grief. You know it's coming. Mm -hmm. The rest of us live in this illusion that things are gonna stay the same. And then life happens and we're dealing with loss. Mm -hmm. So we'll call that the unpredictable grief. Right. What is the same as far as a strategy to navigate those two types of grief? When it's a predictable grief, we talk a lot about um, grieving before the person dies, actually. When you are aware that that time is coming, you go through a lot of the emotions to begin with. It doesn't mean that your grief after the death won't be intense, 
Mm -hmm. um, but it has a different quality to it. When it is a sudden and unexpected death, the shock, the disbelief, the, the times that even people say, no, it didn't happen. Days later, you know, families talk about should we have a funeral or not? And especially when it's a sudden death, I say, yeah, because you need that point um, for a lot of reasons, but one of them being that when you see a whole lot of people together grieving your loved one, you can't pretend it's not real as much anymore. Uh, you can't deny it as much. And then um, anger is often increased, uh, whether the, you're angry at your loved one for um, driving on that icy road that caused that horrible accident or uh, God forbid your loved one died by suicide. Lots of anger in that realm. There's a lot about being left behind and it doesn't matter. I agree with you. It doesn't matter why someone passes if we don't know that it's coming or even mm -hmm. if we do. Yeah. The how dare you, this wasn't the deal I signed up for. It's an act of betrayal. Yes. That we don't often talk about in those terms. Mm -hmm. So let's just go there because betrayal okay. is an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that betrayal is an emotion, but it's an emotional experience that has a lot of context, you know, a lot of complexity um, around it. And so suicide is amazingly triggering as far as this experience of betrayal. And when you said whitewater moments, mm -hmm. I was like, oh yeah, we see a lot of that. So right. I'm going to have you take us on a journey. Where did this concept of whitewater come from as far as grief goes and as far as your life goes? Oh, thank you. Yes. So there's no one right way to grieve mm. not everybody grieves in the same way and how you feel today in your grief is very likely to be different than how you feel tomorrow in your grief and so it's um some days really intense some days it settles a little bit more uh, and the image for me of going down the white waters where there are some moments when you're just going right over the edge and crashing at the bottom um, and your whole world feels like it's exploded. From that all the way to the serene and calm pools that you find in the midst of that sometimes where you pause, catch your breath, feel at ease a little bit, feel the rays of the sunshine warming not just your body, but your heart and your soul. Oh. And you never know what's around the bend, right? <laughs> Rivers go windy crazy and who knows what's next. And that truly is the journey of grief. Um, you never know what to expect. And it does have incredible highs and incredible lows. You know, there's a, a place in loss and grief. And I'm a military brat. So <laughs> I learned about something called survivor guilt. Yes. 
from being part of that world and people who came back from combat and their companion did not, you know, right. their compatriot, their battle buddy, you know, they did, you know, they came back and the other person didn't. And sometimes it was as random for my dad. It was as random as he was standing up. Somebody walked around the building and happened to get between him and a sniper's bullet. Mm. So that bullet was meant for him, you know, direct trajectory, but the other person walked around the building and accidentally intercepted it. So for my dad, this concept of survivor guilt was really huge. When it comes to suicide, we see a lot of this. Mm -hmm. um, when it came to my own daughter's suicide attempts, this sense of why didn't I prevent this? You know, mm -hmm. Even people who share that you know their family member was getting counseling. They were in the professional mental health. And we're this is a topic that we're going to be talking about a lot, is mm -hmm. you know, they were getting help. Right. And yet they took their own life. And the family still is like, I didn't do enough. I could have done more. What can we say to someone who's navigating grief, whether it's around suicide or not, that is stuck in the you know, what they call the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Right. Especially with suicide. If, if someone is planning to die by suicide and they have their mind set on that, um, there's not a whole lot you can do to prevent it. Maybe you can jump in and stop it at that moment if you're aware that the, they're actively going in that direction. But that doesn't mean that you will be there tomorrow or when they try the next time. The only way that any of us can, can keep someone from suiciding is to hold their hand 24 seven. And that's unrealistic. We can't do that. Um, and yes, we are left with, especially as moms, right? What did I do wrong? How come I didn't see that coming? How, what, what should I have done differently? I, I'm her mom. I'm his mom. I should have. Yeah. Well, any parent, mom or dad, um, because right. we've got dads yeah. that, that are coming on and, and openly having this discussion with us, which we greatly appreciate because th this is a, uh, a true bipartisan, if you will, experience. Yeah. It's a bi-parent experience. It's right. I was saying, mom, just in reference yeah. to you and me specifically, but yes, the whole wider world, parents and others who are involved in that person's life in any way. So let's accept that there's not a way to prevent suicide for anyone outside of our own skin. The only person whose behavior we can control is our own. So now the event has occurred, mm -hmm. death by any means. Right. And, and what I'm wondering, Lee, is for the most part, the people who we reach with this show are the people who find themselves in support roles. Yeah. And so what can someone in that support role do that actually helps? I don't think there are any words that can be spoken 
that take away a person's grief, that take away their deepest pain. But what I do know is that to sit with that person, to walk the journey with them, is one of the best things we can offer, to let them know that they're not alone, let them know that we're okay with, if they wanna yell and scream and shout, we'll be with them. If they wanna laugh, we'll be with them. If they wanna cry and sob, we'll be with them. Well, you are describing the hardest job in the world, which is the friend who just stands by, visible right. but not intervening. Yes, it's very hard. It's very hard. All right, so we're, we're going to give some people some support here. Visible <laughs> but not intervening. Right. Okay. So visible means what in your world? What could someone do to help stay visible in the support role? Um, there's being in person, you know, sitting with the person in person. And in our COVID world, we can't do that so well right now. It's not saying, call me if you need help, but reaching out and saying, here I am. Let's Got just hang out for a while. Let's have, you know, want to join me for a cup of coffee over Zoom. But don't be afraid to insert yourself into their world. All right, because we're, we're going we're to call it what it is. Initiate the action. Yes, absolutely. All right. If you are in the support role, you have to initiate the action. That's what I'm hearing from you. Yes. I can't, you can't wait because people grieving are not known to be able to think about what they need. Right. And even on a good day, how many of us find it easy to ask for help, let alone when you're immersed in something so tragic? All right, so being visible means reaching out, being the one to start the conversation, to start the connection, to invite to the coffee. Yep, yeah. Okay, cool. That's a really good first step. It's also not an easy one. It's very true. All right, so let's, let's give some motivation. What could motivate someone to take that action? I know for me, even before I was doing this in a professional way, just um, wanting to be a support. And how can I? Because I care about this person. And most of us who are going to reach out are doing so because we care. Um, That's a pretty brilliant question. How can I support them today? And I'm going to give a short list of what just came to my mind. How could I support them today? Mm -hmm. Am I going to the store where I could pick something up from them? Yes. Am I taking a break and having a cup of coffee where I could invite them to join me? Am I, so looking at my schedule, where can I use my current schedule to support them today? Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thought I hadn't had until you were just talking about it. So that's, that's lovely. The Bringing dinners is always good. Um, but also what else might they need? Um, yeah. Do they have a pet that I could take for a walk? Yeah. Yes. Um, could I walk with them? Because we know that moving the body is a great way to help people process emotion. Right. 
Um, I'm coming over to clean your house. What's the best time? Oh, there we go. I volunteer. If somebody wants to <laughs> practice, you can come and practice that at my house. Right, yeah. mine too. Anytime. Yeah, that right. would be awesome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's really cool. The idea that we can take an active role. Yes. Grief is often seen as an isolating um, non-activity mm -hmm. that people who are grieving want to be alone and they want to be left alone. How does that play out in healthy grieving? In healthy grieving, did you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, certainly alone time is beneficial for many people but it's finding that balance of you can't completely isolate yourself because that there's not room for healing for complete healing in that regard. Um, maybe you break out of the box of that isolation just by um, a walk up and down your driveway, not in the middle of winter when it's only 30 degrees, but I'm picturing a summer day where you might have someone walk by and just a glance can be a beginning, but taking baby steps. So for the person actively grieving, it's about baby steps. For the person supporting them, yep. how often does it happen that somebody gets pushed away? You know, I'm Not reaching out. Often. Okay. Not too often. Um, my experience has been much more that the grieving people are thankful that someone has reached out. Um, in part because we don't know how to ask for help, but in part, as you mentioned, Jackie, we're in an emotional chaos and we're not thinking well. And often the things that we can call up and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm stopping at the grocery store, I'll pick up whatever. It helps because they don't have to think of that. They probably oh, yeah. hadn't thought of that. Do you need some milk to go with your coffee? Oh, they hadn't thought of that. Um, it is the simplest of things that make the biggest difference is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just invite people listening, start your list. Right. Because we don't know where we can make a difference. Now, I'm going to bring it into my world, okay? Yep. In my world of pure prevention, when it comes to suicide, if you know someone who's had a loss, mm -hmm. especially from suicide, but any kind of, of loss in their family, it is incumbent upon us to recognize that the person grieving is at high risk for taking yes. their own life because we're not taught how to navigate emotional pain. We are not taught how to navigate the white waters of any emotion, much less grief. And right. that's why I liken grief to betrayal because this is not an education that we usually get growing up. Very you know, true. Even if we have that betrayal growing up, the adults around us didn't get the education either. So they can't really help us or they couldn't in my case, help yep. me navigate that. So accepting that this person's at risk. Yes. 
And how can you support them in a preventative, pure preventative role? And all of these things we've been discussing, these very simple ideas of Zoom coffee, I'm coming over to clean your house today. What's a good time? Um, I'm going to the store. Do you need milk? For Not just do you need something because they'll say no, but do you need milk for your coffee? Do you need coffee? Do you need? Yeah. Um, yep. I'm coming over. Can I, um, I'm going to walk the dog for you. Do you want to go with me? Yeah. Yes. That these, these kinds of really simple, basic show up things. If we had the confidence to do them, we mm -hmm. could change the world and we could change the statistics because the statistics are really scary. When someone has a loss, they are at high risk for creating another loss in the village. And that's right. what suicide is yeah. for me. Yes. And, the, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but if a family member dies by suicide, others in the family, their likelihood of mm -hmm. dying the same way increases. So that's why this is such an important conversation for me, Lee. When it comes to navigating loss in general, we know that the, or at least I believe I know, I am not even sure that I know this, but I, I've heard there are five stages to grief. Yep. You know, we talked about shock and disbelief. We talked about anger. What are the other stages that you see typically? Oh, they run the gamut. So I often um, move beyond the five stages and use uh, as many words as I can to talk about what might you experience in grief. Oh, thank so God. That, <laughs> however, right? So that the person who's grieving, whatever they're feeling, they can hear it be normalized. That what they're feeling doesn't have to fit in the box. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who came up with those five stages, did awesome work. But it's important to know that those it's five not a stages, one size fit all. it's yeah. not a one size fit all. The stages can be mixed up that you're not gonna experience each one at the same level. And we all have different words for them. I think one of the most isolative things that I see in grief is feeling like you're doing it wrong. Got it. Okay. So, so, so now we, we started a list of what to do if you're in a support role. Let's start a list of what not to do if you're in a support role. Don't ignore it. <laughs> okay. So, so don't ignore it. You were just talking about the language and uh -huh. how we don't use the same words for things. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what not to say to someone who's grieving. Oh. <laughs> Don't worry, this'll end, you'll get over it. Um, God, God needed another flower in God's garden. Um, it's been a week, shouldn't, like, aren't you okay now? Uh, there are so many things that we say that we, our intention is to be supportive, but some of the things that we say are the most horrible for the grieving person to hear. Oh, I, you lost your child, but oh, you've got three others. Oh God. Spot, right. And 
it's well intentioned, but those are what I often hear are the most difficult that someone has said to someone grieving. Wow. Yeah. I, I you know, okay. I, I can see that. I can see where that's a real issue. Yeah. Um, for a parent who's lost a child to suicide, who has other children, mm -hmm. this is especially challenging because some things really do run in families. And for parents to be on constant watch, you know, I mean, there, there's a blessing in ignorance in some respects because I didn't know that this ran in families. And so I have three daughters, one of them attempted suicide multiple times. I didn't realize this put my other kids at risk right. and put them into a higher risk group. You know, we, we all got mental health support um, through this period of time, but no one told me, no one in the mental health community told me that my other children were at higher risk um, or that I was at higher risk. Um, right. it's, it's a really interesting place to be, to be ignorant and then now that this is the field that I'm in, I'm going, holy crap, what I didn't know. The mm -hmm. fact that anybody survives <laughs> is pretty amazing. <laughs> so so we're, we're on, this is the point of, if you're navigating grief and mm -hmm. you've got other people around you, helping yourself is as simple as one staying focused on you but if you have children if you are a parent actively parenting kids making sure that somebody's keeping an eye out yes you've got to have space to grieve and you still are responsible for what goes on with your kids that so is this is what i'd be if you could support a parent going through this show up oh right. my god Absolutely, absolutely. Because a especially a parent, that is a whole different kind of grief altogether. When you lose a child, you add on to that all the complexities of it being by suicide, the survivor's guilt, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. It takes a whole lot of energy, self-care to to just survive that, right, as a parent. Where then do parents find the energy and well-being and courage to support their children? In that immediate after part, in that year, maybe even two or three years afterwards, that is really hard. And yes, as a supporter, keep an eye out on the kids. Offer to take them out. Offer to just uh, be a sounding board for the kids. Um, and know, as you said, that the risk is so much higher. Yeah. So yeah. having the friend who just stands by could also be the friend who just stands by my kids. Right. Yeah. Yes. And I think another, you know, you mentioned the, the things not to say, and I want to voice one very important thing to say, mm -hmm. along with being present, um, name it, 
don't avoid using the word suicide. That only makes it more taboo, gives the survivors more reason to feel guilty, doesn't allow them to express what really happened. And it's important to express that. If you don't, you won't heal completely. It'll come no. back to bite you. All right, we're, we're going to go there because when I first started with this, how do we interrupt the epidemic of teen suicide, which was in the fall of 19, no, of 2019. So just a little over a year ago, mm -hmm. we put together a book and I realized that I struggled to use the word suicide. And when I did some research, I found that suicide is a relatively new word in the English language. It came into being in the 1600s at the same time as another concept around taking your own life. It was called self-murder and it was considered a crime. Right. And then the more um, observable word, the more neutral word, suicide. And it was considered a more neutral word compared mm -hmm. to self-murder. And it was considered a crime because it was a crime against the village. They understood that it damaged the entire community. It was not an isolated thing. Lee, fast forward to today and we don't consider it a crime. We don't consider it to be the... Um, it's almost like it, it's become a personal right. And on the one hand, I absolutely agree that it's a personal right, it's a personal choice. And I don't think enough people understand the consequences that it leaves behind. They don't have enough information to be able to make an informed choice. Information, get the information out there. And that is part of why I am so excited that you are doing this because it, what you don't know, you don't know isn't going to help you, but to learn, right? So um, the thing to say is to name the elephant in the room, mm -hmm. which is to, to be able to say, I don't know what you're going through. Mm -hmm. They took their own life. They, you know, and the language around suicide is such a politically correct hot mess right now <laughs> that there can be flaming arguments about whether you can use it committed suicide. Yeah. The people who say, yo, I wasn't successful at taking my own life. I'm like, why would you put success and suicide in the same sentence? Um, but then people object that I put fun and suicide prevention in the same sentence. So. We, we all have our hot buttons and I wanna press on some hot buttons on this topic of grief, Lee, because you've hit upon some major mythology. Mm -hmm. So the major myths of grief, what are they? That I think the most major um, is that there's a prescribed way to grieve. Okay. Um, the, there's a myth that you should be over grief very quickly. Uh, different experts will say different amounts of time, 
but everyone is different. The impact of the death is going to affect everybody differently. I have okay. people who are grieving years later. It's, it's finding the tools to still live while grieving. Got it. Um, that's really a key. Okay. So, so life continues when you're grieving. So we have life during grief. Yeah. Um, and for some people, there is no after grief. There is life during grief for the rest of their life. And that doesn't make them wrong is what I'm hearing. That's, That's just right. their way of navigating the waters. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really interesting. You know, there's the other side, which is there's the person who comes to acceptance and peace in a very short period of linear time. And, and they have just as much crap handed to them from other people that um, you know, so I love the fact that it doesn't matter how long it takes you to go through awareness of the loss to acceptance of the loss. Yep. And then whatever life is after that. So we've got those key pieces, however long it takes from awareness to acceptance is however long it takes and you can't do it wrong. There's not right. one right way to do it. I love that. In, I'm also a fire chaplain. And in our world of supporting first responders, we talk about um, I, I used the word normalizing it before uh, that it's not unusual for you to do whatever the list is, right? You're having trouble sleeping, that's not unusual. Um, you're, you don't don't have an appetite, that's not unusual. You pay attention to how long that's lasting. And then that might indicate that you have what's called complicated grief. It's gonna be more challenging to overcome. And there are tools and resources out there to help improve those pieces. All right, so let's talk about it. Yeah. Tools and resources. So whether I'm in the grief or whether I'm supporting someone in the grief, what are the tools and resources that I might want to know about? Uh, reaching out so often funeral homes will have a lot of the resources. It's an easy place to find much. Um, talking to your clergy person, if you have one, um, your primary care physician, reaching out to the mental health community, um, looking at what are your coping mechanisms? Have you, uh, have you okay. started? Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to pull you out of your normal realm of professionalism and say, I want the top <laughs> five coping mechanisms because oh, that's a concept that I don't have a cup for. I don't have a tangible thing. So let's do the <laughs> top five coping mechanisms. Healthy ones or not healthy ones? <laughs> oh, yeah, let's do both. Okay, so right? the, the, the top that's five healthy ones. Going. Um, many people will turn to drugs and alcohol as their coping mechanisms. So especially if you are a supporter, being aware of what was normal for this person before the death and what's happening now. Um, and do you right. need to talk to them about, hey, too much of this is going on. 
And then another resource, is, resource becomes the communities that support alcoholics, narcotics, and all those. That's one area. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna push. I'm gonna push okay. back, and I'm gonna say there's no wrong way to do this. And when somebody's going through grief, another layer of guilt, which can often come with accepting a label of yep. like, I've got an, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, now I've got to deal with the label of alcoholic when I'm already the yep. label of this. I'm, I'm going to invite that everyone to, yes, bring awareness to it and offer to, you know, go with them to talk to a doctor to, to, to. So when I talk about Alcoholics Anonymous or one of those, I imagine that not just saying you need to go and label you with alcoholism, but people who have been there, done that are going to be able to give you the words to speak to the person who is suffering. They're going to be able to give you the more impactful um, tools and resources to support that person. So finding the right way to support someone is just as simple as accepting you can't do it wrong. And, and so whatever resources you have at your availability without getting yourself caught up in any kind of labeling right. of the person is, is where I was going because it's so easy to put labels on things. And I think labels really limit our ability to help people. I agree. Uh -huh. I so, agree. Yeah. So, yeah, so unhealthy coping mechanisms, a change in their use of any kind of um, substance, whether drugs, alcohol, food, like you oh, said, you say food. loss of appetite, excessive appetite, just being around enough to notice the change is a huge, huge thing. So that's being aware as a support person of an unhealthy coping mechanism. Yep. Um, Adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Addiction to adrenaline and cortisol is something that's a little sneakier, but it, it's come up for me. And so what, what might somebody in a support role look for? Because drugs, alcohol, food, sleep, but what about adrenaline? What might they be looking for? The adrenaline, the, the, keeps a person running at 100 miles an hour that is so unlike them, right? And okay, maybe so they're going to calm down for a while, but then for some reason you see them just the intensity of all the emotions. And when I say running at 100 miles an hour, that just might, it can be expressed in any way, right? Yeah, but the, so we're going to call this excessive yeah. busyness or... I'm going to just say, I think you hit upon something that if you start noticing that they are driving 100 miles an hour, that they are engaging in risky driving patterns or things like Or that. any risky. Yeah, R risky things. If they say they're going to take up parachuting and mountain climbing, this might be a time to really make sure they buddied <laughs> up with somebody. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, right. What are healthy mechanisms? What are healthy coping mechanisms? So what? One, uh, let me say one more thing about the not so healthy ones. I think for the supporter, you know the person best. You're going to be aware when something is standing out as unusual for you, that you haven't seen that person. So whatever it is, 
be aware and conscious of what's unusual. So the healthy, um, healthy mechanisms, self-care is, is huge. Um, so, and I, I say it's important to think of self-care before you're ever in a need to have it on this kind of level, right? Um, what makes you feel whole spiritually, emotionally, physically, and, and knowing them so that when you're in a traumatic place, you don't have to stop and think about what can I do for myself that's going to help. It's, it's there. It's sec you don't second guess anything. All right. So we're going to put that down as what can I do for myself? Yep. Um, as this is the preventative for getting swept away by the white waters of loss and grief right. is right. by being able to ask this question before you need it. Before you need it. Before you need it. What can I do for myself? And then when you're in this point that you do need it. Um, so let me just use an example. Uh, a nice, hot, relaxing bath. Lots of people like that after a long day of work or a long week of work. But if you're in the midst of deep and intense grief and someone says, how about a hot bath? Your energy, your whatever, your ability to just get up and do that might be so low that you're going to brush it away. But if you know and you've had the experience of that hot bath being really helpful for you, it's going to be easier to push yourself to do that. So in a supportive role, asking the person, what were you doing that felt good to take care of yourself before they died? Which yes. might be a useful question. Yes. To help the person grieving remember. Yeah. And then what do you need from me so that you can do that again? Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it to how can I help you do that again? Okay, because I think that that's easier to answer for my brain. Um, you know, because if somebody says, what can I do? The answer is nothing. Yeah. Yep, good point. <laughs> <laughs> but if they say, how can I? I might, it activates a different part of my brain. Um, and, and that's my brain. So whatever question works for you will probably work for your friend if you're in a support role. So ask it the way your brain works. Yes. Um, I love that. Self-care is probably the best healthy mechanism. The other ones that you've mentioned, I'm just going to highlight for everyone, that it was about reaching out to a more spiritual, more grounded community. If they've been part of a faith-based, religious-based, spiritually-based community in the past, then a supportive person can help ensure that those ties stay intact that yes. that connection survives the whitewater periods mm -hmm. um, and, and stays part of the whitewater experience because mm -hmm. we are going to have whitewater moments of grief. I love that analogy. It is so very vivid. Oh, thank you. You may not have one, by the way. You, it's, you know, grief mm -hmm. is grief and it's not a one size fits all package. But That's if true. you have a whitewater moment or your friend is having you know this uncontrollable feeling of life shifting, knowing them enough to, or asking them, do you have a community that you usually spend time with? And just 
keeping that awareness, that connection, not even you not dragging them, kicking and screaming, but, but keeping them aware that they have that resource is probably useful. Does that make, am I on the right track? You are, you are. Um, A feeling of being completely lost is one that's often expressed. So yes, you're helping them find what it is that can be resourceful. Now, I'm going to put myself out on ledge because I believe that the cure for everything is fun. Um, (laughs) There may be moments that someone is in the middle of their grieving, that they do something that that they laugh (laughs) and then they go into remorse. Yes. Yes. So often. So how... What can someone say who's in the support role just to help people recognize that you're still, just because you're grieving, you're still going to have all the emotions. Right. Um, it's okay to laugh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Giving permission, giving permission. Yeah. And then what would, referencing the person who died, do you think they'd rather see you laughing or never laughing again? Um not and, and, always. That's a yeah. risky question, but I was going to say 99% of the time. Okay. I'll go with that. One. So you need to know the person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, I got another one. You tell me if you think this is a good one. Okay. Okay. Do you think, and again, referencing the person who died, do you think they would have found that funny? Because yeah. that's going to, I, I think that part of the challenge is, like you said, to name the elephant in the room, which is this person's gone, but do you think they would have found it funny? Yep. Because that's going to be their story for the rest of their life. Yes. Is do I think they would have? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's been my experience with my parents passing is, you know, do I think they would have? Um, at, and at some points, you know, this is just had to become a conversation that I could have. Right. Yeah. Um, I often, when it comes to laughter and grief, I often think of um, a woman and her daughter who I journeyed with, time flies, I think it's been three years now. Um, Vicky's daughter died at 16 years old. She was diagnosed with a terminal illness at the age of one and a half. They didn't expect her to live past three or four. Wow. So mom had lots of time with her, with her girl. She died on hospice. Um, and th- this girl uh, physically, mentally disabled, but any room she ever walked into she brightened and people laughed. So after she died, mom was devastated, just like you'd expect her to be. But mom also laughed. And I remember one day, it was only a couple of weeks after she called me up and she said, Lee, I just was out with whoever that she was out with. And they were angry with me for laughing. Mm-hmm. She said she was going to write a book on laughter after grief. But from her perspective, it was, I want to keep those happy memories of her alive. And how can I do it if I don't laugh? Mm-hmm. 
And so being that, aware, I think as a support person, being aware of where our judgments are in the way yep. of being present for the person who is the one who's grieving. Yes. The white waters of grief are a personal thing and other people's grieving process can trigger unfinished grief within us. Mm -hmm. So as a support person, I'm going to encourage everyone to manage your self-care. Yes. Because you don't know how to support someone else to the extent that that's possible if you're not able to support yourself. So support people need self-care too. Yes. I'm going to invite you all to take it to heart and to allow other people to support you. Yep. So caring please, for the caregiver. Oh, yeah, and, and caring for the caregiver is a perfect segue. <laughs> Katie has a link for everyone to your gift, which is absolutely flipping amazing. Lately. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so you know, for everyone who's here live, and I want you to take and yeah, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, Lee. If you know someone who is in an active support role, share this link with them because this is about navigating change and loss for yourself and for others. And so navigating change and loss, a 30 minute one-on-one -on -one conversation with Lee. And Lee, I just, that is such an amazingly valuable gift. Thank you so very, very much. Oh, you're welcome. If I can help make a difference, yeah. I want to. Well, you have certainly made a difference today. I cannot thank you enough for being willing to be part of the show. Thank you. Thank you. And for everyone else, hang on. The ride gets more interesting from here. <laughs>